Ken. Uh, thank you so much for those that are able to work with them singing this morning and uh, appreciate so much the work that goes in that. Luke chapter 10. How did you get your last name? I know the obvious answer is your father, but uh, before that, how did your last name uh, come into being? I found out this week that Yoder This was the name of the patron saint of Western Switzerland. Makes you look at me a little differently, doesn't it? Now, I, I'm not saying that I expect anybody to refer to me as saint when you talk to me from now on, but I understand if you would like to. We're talking about the origin of names and how last names came into being. It's kind of a fascinating thing to study. Uh, John, for instance, uh, back in the day, there were tons of Johns, and they would only use first names, and, and there being many Johns, uh, they would refer to the occupation, and that's how many last names came to be. So you had John the carpenter, or Philip uh, the smith, and then eventually the was dropped, and you'd have John Carpenter and Philip Smith. For example, Cooper. Cooper is the occupational name of one who makes vessels such as barrels, tubs, and buckets. It came from a Middle English uh, Cooper, C-O-U-P-E-R, and later was changed to C-O-O-P-E-R. Did you know that? Amen. Now you learned something today. In other words, you were known for your occupation, for what you did. I took the liberty of looking up Forsberg because I, I wanted to. You know, you never know what you're going to find when you start digging in that well. It comes from the Swedish origin. It's an ornamental name composed of two parts, fours for waterfall and berg for mountain. Now, I know all of this is true because I found it on the Internet. And you can believe everything you read on the Internet. Amen? Abraham Lincoln said that. And I found that on the Internet as well. So we know the... And you say, preacher, you sit there and just look all of us up. <laughs> yeah, looked a lot of you up found some of your dark family secrets you didn't know about. I'm kidding. I didn't look all of you up. Ellingson comes from a Norwegian name, uh, son of, El the son, son of Elling, uh, which is from an old Norse name, Erlinger, which means the son of an earl. That, you always felt that, didn't you, brother? Ellingson is a noble name. That's a good name to have. So salute uh, Brother Jerry when you see him going down. Now, today, we're not named for our occupations. Uh, we have our last names. We get them from our fathers, and we, it passes on that way. But uh, still, in many ways, we're known for what we do. We measure people by their accomplishments. We evaluate the worth of a person by the extent of their achievements. We identify people for what they do in life. Look with me at my passage. I want to look at Luke chapter 10, starting at verse number 17. The Bible says, And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. 
Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I want to preach to you this morning on, a, on the subject for a few minutes here. Where do you find your value? Where is your value? Father, I pray that you'd help us in the next few minutes here as we look at this passage. And I really believe a wonderful truth that will help us in our daily lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had anyone introduce themselves to you by what they do? Hi, I'm Mike. I'm a lawyer. In fact, in other words, they are kind of, to them, their job is uh, not only what they do, but who they are. Their identity is fine, found in what they do. Their career reinforces to them that they are somebody. Now this, and I want to show you today, is a huge mistake in our life. This would mean that your self-worth is only as reliable as your career. Uh, this, what happens with economic downturn or uh, some kind of unexpected dismissal or, or uh, any, maybe a sickness that comes into your life. Everything can change in our circumstances overnight. And so we should not find our worth or our value in that. If you measure your self-worth by what you do, what happens when you can no longer do what it is that you do? The disciples in our text are in danger of making a big mistake. There is a worldly mindset, the idea of being known by what we do, being legitimized by our actions. Uh, the disciples are in danger here, I believe, of an identity crisis. By adopting the worldly mindset into the Christian life, we cheapen what God has done for us. And this is the constant conflict that we're faced with every day that we live the Christian life. There's a worldly mindset, and there's the way that God thinks. There's two opposing philosophies. The world's philosophy and God's philosophy are completely contrary to one another. In fact, they're diametrically opposed to each other. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's a pretty strong statement, but the idea is that you have the world over here, you have Christianity, you have God's mindset over here. The two never come together. They are always in complete opposition to each other, and there is a problem when we try to hold hands with one of them, hold hands with the other one of them, and wonder why our life is being ripped apart and torn to shreds. So we must be on guard. We do not want to ever allow worldly thinking to enter our Christian mindset. Now let's see how this manifested itself in the disciple situation. Look at verse number one of our chapter. After these things, the Lord appointed other seventy also and sent them two by two before his face in every, creature, uh, every city and place, whether he himself would come. <coughs> Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers unto his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. And he goes on with their instruction that he has for them as they go. Now, these, you have to understand, are not... Uh, by the way, they're more than just the 12 disciples. He says here there's 70. And so they're not uh, people spending every day with Jesus. They're not part of the 12. They're not really full-time in ministry. They're just 
regular people. In today's vernacular, we would call them laymen. Now, they're not, they have families, they have jobs, they have careers, they have regular lives. They're following Jesus, but they're not following him like the disciples are that forsook all and follow him on a daily basis and never leave. Now, Jesus gives them a message for the people. He puts them into the work of the ministry. Not only that, he endows them with power, the Bible says, to heal the sick. It says so in the following verses that he sends them out. So here are just regular people, regular John Q. Pew sitters, and they are uh, wanting to do something for Jesus. He gives them a commission to go out with the gospel, the message of the gospel, and then he tells them you're going to have power to heal people on top of that. <clears throat> now this is interesting. Talk about being stretched out of your comfort zone. They, I said they were normal people, but this was not going to be normal behavior or what they're used to. Jesus tells them in verse 4, don't pack a suitcase. He says, carry neither purse nor script. Script would be like a wallet, uh, nor shoes, nor salute men by the way. What he's saying basically here is do not get sidetracked. Don't get distracted. Do the work that I've sent you to do. Still good advice for us today, isn't it? So here is... These people, newly follower of Jesus, sent out as an evangelist. Can you imagine what happens when they first, when they come to the first town square, the first town they come to? You go first. No, 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 you go first. You had two days more schooling than I did. I'll take the next one. You go. No, you go. There would be a trepidation. I remember a number of years ago, I took our youth group to a missions trip to New York City. We worked in conjunction with a missionary out there, and what, our, what we did is we preached in the subways. And uh, it's, if you've ever been in a subway in New York City, it's, it's quite phenomenal. It's a huge, it, we had this huge platform, and up to 150 people, 200 people would gather, the, sub would, the, the train would pull up, they'd get on, and then we'd have about, in about three to five minutes, another 150 people were there. We had about five minutes to talk to these people. And what we did, we had to basically jump up and get all of their attention. And we had about four to five minutes to give them the gospel. We had a spotter at the track on the other end that would kind of give me the signal when the train was coming. And then we had to wrap it up. And it was just give the gospel to 150 people whew, to get on the train. The next group comes, give the gospel. It was pretty amazing, but it was Extremely scary, especially at first. Everything in me screamed, you're a weirdo. They're going to think you're crazy, and many of them did. But uh, this, I can imagine, was much the same for these folks. But something happened. God showed up, and he showed up in a big way. I can imagine the first time a sick man is brought to them. Brother Corey, can you picture it? Uh, somebody comes, you know, you've been preaching like Jesus preached, and here's somebody sick. Can you heal them? Jesus said, we could. Why don't you try to heal him? No, you try to heal him. And they did. He was healed. Imagine a blind person being brought to them. In the name of Jesus Christ, may your sight be restored. I can see. No way. Really? <laughs> That's amazing. And so here they were. They were experiencing new things. Uh, here comes a parent bringing a demon-possessed child. 
And they deliver him of the demon. Now the word starts to spread. This Jesus that heals people, and he's been traveling around the country preaching. Here's his men, and they can do the same thing. And people start showing up in crowds. Uh, they build every place they go. It's an exciting time. Now when they come to town, I'll take this one. No, no, you had the last one. I'll get this one. You know what I'm saying? It all changes when you start getting the power of God on your life. And by the way, this is how, uh, this is what happens when you are found faithful. The more you do, the more you're able to do. Somebody might say, and I've, I've heard this, actually. My, I wish I was a gifted soul winner like Pastor Forsberg. Can I tell you something? Pastor Forsberg did not come out of the womb and hand the doctor a tract. This did not happen. Am I correct? I made an assumption. I assume I'm correct. Okay. How does one become a good soul winner? Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is the tree of life. He that winneth souls is wise. You learn soul winning by soul winning. How do you become a good Sunday school teacher? By sitting in front of three really scary looking 60-year-olds and just plunging in. How do you become a good prayer warrior? By praying even when you don't feel like it every day of your life and continuing to pray. How do you become a good preacher? By getting behind the pulpit despite all the butterflies and just pouring your heart out. I'm simply saying you be faithful. You do what God says and he will enable you to do it. When God says to ride, he always provides the horse. Psalm 84:11. for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. But something happened in this story. Look at verse number 17. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject <coughs> unto us through thy name. They returned again with joy. They were excited. They were pumped up. They were thrilled. They were psyched. They were really, really on a high. It is abundantly clear why. Picture yourself in their shoes. You are a stonemason. You're a fisherman. You're a day laborer. Your life is boring, or I, would, I should say, I guess, your life was boring at one point. But now you're preaching and people flock to you. You're able to heal the sick. You're doing things that you've never even seen done before and certainly never thought you could do. Uh, you were a nobody, but now you're a somebody. You are admired. You're sought out. You're a superstar. No wonder they came and said here that it says they returned again with joy. Now, in the context here, the word joy carries a greater meaning. Joy really means finding your satisfaction and your contentment in something. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Why? Because we find our contentment in Him, our satisfaction in Him. That's why we have joy as a fruit of the Spirit. Now, here's the problem in our text. As they're doing all these great works, good things, things that God told them to do, they're beginning to find their value in what they do. Do you see it? Lord, with joy, satisfaction, contentment. Lord, even the devils are subject unto us. In fact, they're looking at themselves differently. They, now they see themselves as a person of great worth. All this attention they've been getting causes them to see themselves as being worth something all of a sudden. Question for you today, what do you think? Think, really, really think in your life.
makes you worth something? What are you known for? What is it that makes you say, you can just finish the sentence, I am worthwhile because I, what? What is it in your life? We attach value to a person because of what we do or what we are. We are then become driven uh, to perform in those areas, not just because God wants us to do it. We work at it because we think, if I keep up this performance in my life, then and only then do I matter. Our significance is found in our performance. Consider the ways that these, the lives of these 70 were changing. No one knew me two months ago. And now they flock to hear me speak. This would do wonders for their self-worth. Hey, people are noticing me now. I really am somebody. Now when this happens, what happens next? The result is working, struggling to find our value in what we do in life. And when we're on top, things look good. We're excited. We're pumped up. And this is the disciples. This is where they were. They were beside themselves because they're even able to uh, 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 send demons out of people. By the way, this was an extra. Jesus never promised them. Read the first part of the chapter. He didn't promise them demons. He just promised them heal the sick. And they were able to do that. That was, was an extra. Isn't, God, isn't it a blessing when God gives you extras? Think of the pastor's conference last year. It's coming up in a month, a little over a month. The pastor's conference last year, we prepared for 80. Said the most we'll have, I'd be thrilled if we'd have 80. So I told the ladies with the food and had everything prepared for 80. We had a, over 110 people here. That was an extra. It was exciting. Then in verse 18, Jesus pops their bubble. Just a little. He says, uh, what basically here, you cast out demons, that's all fine and good. Look what he says in verse 18. I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. He essentially, he's saying here, I was, I was there. I saw Satan himself cast out of heaven. In other words, I have seen power and I've seen ability like you can't even imagine. We find the story in Isaiah 14, Lucifer being cast out of heaven. Lucifer was the shining one. He was the great morning star. Lucifer was the magnificent angel. We see the description of him in Ezekiel chapter 28. Uh, verse 12 says he was full of wisdom. He was perfect in beauty. In verse 13 it says, Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardis, the uh, topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and gold. He had more jewelry on him than Liberace ever did. Uh, it tells us in verse 13, he had great musical ability. The tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day thou was created. Tabrets are small drums. He could play musical instruments. The pipes that talks about he was created with, many theologians believed he was built, uh, his, he was created with some sort of, uh, like a, almost like a pipe system uh, to where he could lead the angels and all of heaven in the music that they had. He had a singing voice beyond our capability to imagine. Verses 14 and 16 tells of Lucifer's great position and power before the fall. Not only was he an anointed cherub, he was, the Bible says, a covering cherub. In other words, in charge of the others. He had position. He had power. Verse 15 tells us of his great moral character before the fall. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day thou was created. So, 
just to summarize, because I want to get a good picture of who he was. Full of wisdom. Lucifer was probably the most intelligent being ever created, uh, probably then, then and now. He's probably the most, he was the top, uh, the echelon of God's creation. He was perfect in beauty. Not only was he intelligent, but he was beautiful to look upon. He was, had great musical ability. He could play the musical instruments. He could, uh, had a beautiful singing voice. He was probably the choir director and the organ player in the throne room of God. He was a musical being. By the way, I think that that might be one reason that Satan still gets his foothold in many churches today, and he does it through the music program, as he makes the music more like the world and less honoring to God. There was great position and power. He was the top cherub in the very throne room of God. There was, he had great moral conduct. No one was better than Lucifer. In fact, thou was perfect in thy ways. But remember that God created Lucifer, and he did so to bring glory to himself just like all the rest of his creation. Lucifer was beautiful beyond description. He was powerful beyond measure. So what happened to him? Lucifer caught a good case of the eye disease. He says this in Isaiah, I will send into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. What happened? Lucifer became obsessed with what he could do and with what he could be. He got his eyes off of who he was supposed to glorify and on to glorifying himself. The honor he received, the recognition he thought he deserved, he began to be filled with the pride of his own prestige. By the way, this is what happens when we focus on the fact of our service instead of the object of our service. We'd better keep our eyes on whom we're glorifying, not on what we're doing. In the chain of command in heaven, outside of God, Lucifer was on top. But that wasn't enough. He wanted more. And this always happens when our value is based on what we do and on what we are. Comparison starts to set in. You'll get bitter at the success of others. And you'll want the next level of what you have. It'll all be about self-promotion when you focus on what you do. And so... Lucifer overvaluates himself. God meant those abilities given to Lucifer for good and to glorify the Lord. But Lucifer forgot who gave him these abilities. One day he starts thinking, I'm the most beautiful of all. I'm the most wise of all. No one can sing better than me. I'm the most powerful of all the cherubims. I'm on the top. And on top of all this, there's no one better than I am. Maybe I should be God. I'm better than God. I will replace God. Pride. We need to learn from Lucifer. We need to learn not to catch the eye disease. By the way, folks, we're all susceptible to this. Every single one of us. Uh, knowledge. When there's great Bible knowledge, even, even Bible knowledge can cause a person to be prideful. This person will see himself as a consultant in the church rather than a, an investing themselves in the church, build themselves up as a gift instead of a participant. Who does the 
pastor think he is anyway? I probably know more than he does about the Bible. You probably do, but God put him there. The best pastors in the world I've found are ones who've never done it. <laughs> they just watch it like armchair quarterbacks, amen? You, uh, we need to be in our place. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Use that Bible knowledge for the Lord and remember where it came from. How about great music ability? That can bring uh, pride into our life. Slow, the, by the way, show business is the devil's business. We're not about show business, amen? We're about glorifying God. We want to encourage and glorify God with our talents, not feed our pride. What about good moral conduct? That is a source of pride for some people. Satan uses this, by the way, more than anything to convince lost people that they're going to heaven. More unsaved people today will tell you that they're going to heaven based on the fact that they're a good person than anything else. I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anything. I went to church all my life. You know what we're basically saying is, God, I really don't need you to save me. I can do this myself. Well, the truth of it is, nobody can save themselves. Nobody can take themselves to heaven. The Bible tells us about a good moral man. He came to Jesus. In fact, he came by night. Nicodemus, he was the best of the best. He wasn't just any ordinary Jew. He was a Pharisee. He wasn't only a Pharisee, he was a ruler. Uh, he was a, in high position. He was a pillar of the community, the best of the best, the creme de la creme. If you want morality, here you've got it in Nicodemus. Jesus looked straight into his eyes and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Friend, don't let the devil trick you into thinking that your morality will get you to heaven. Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Goodness will never do it for you. We have these points of pride. Satan was so obsessed with himself, he thought that he would conquer God. Jesus said, he fell like lightning from heaven, and I was there to see it. He's warning the disciples about trying to find their value in what they can accomplish. Why? Because it's never going to be enough. It never will. If you put your value in what you can do or what you are, there'll always be tomorrow. There'll always be someone who's better than you. There's always going to be someone who does more. Even in serving God, even as a Christian, when we try to find our value in what we do, when we try to find our value on pats on the back, if we're focused on acceptance from the, our fellow man, this is going to be a vicious cycle that will never satisfy. There's never enough money. There's never enough titles in the world. There's not enough you can do to find your value in what you do. You know what? It'll all lead to a fall, just like it did for Lucifer. You'll keep reaching like Lucifer did, until you reach for the wrong thing in the world, you'll never be enough. You'll never have enough. I think of Solomon. Solomon, the richest man, wisest man that ever lived. Solomon was the Bezos of his time, maybe even more than Bezos. This is what he wrote in Ecclesiastes 2. 
I made me great works. I built me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. I planted trees and all kinds of fruits. I made pools of water to water wherewith the wood that I brought that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem. He said, in other words, I'm the richest man I know. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I get me man singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. He said, what if I saw it and liked it, it was mine. Then I looked at all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do and behold, all was vanity. It's worth it. It's like those little kids when you blow bubbles. Have you ever done that? You blow the soap bubbles and then go after the bubble. And then just as they catch it, it disappears. It looks great if you're outside, especially. It's rainbowy all around. It's colorful. And oh, it's so beautiful and I just have to, and it's gone. That Satan's constantly sending soap bubbles of the world into our lives trying to distract. It's not enough. It'll never be enough. You can work and work and you can plan and scheme, but it'll never be enough. You'll keep reaching until in frustration you quit on God if you try to find value in what you do. So you say, all right, preacher, you've kind of driven home that point. Why then do anything at all? Well, Jesus didn't stop there. Look at what he says in verse 19. Behold, I give you unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus said, oh, don't get me wrong. He says, I will use you. I will empower you. I'll give you victory over opposition and obstacles. I'll help you overcome spiritual resistance. Don't think that I have no desire to put you to work. And by the way, God loves each and every one of you and loves me, and he wants to use each one of us. If you have any ability, praise God for it. The issue is not whether or not you'll be used of God. He will use you. He says so here. But he says in verse 20, Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you. In other words, notwithstanding, it means nevertheless, in spite of. I'm going to use you. But in spite of that, don't find your value in what you do. Don't get carried away by your own abilities, is what he's saying. Okay, then. What do I find my value in? He tells us. But rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. God in heaven has a book. In that book are names. These are the names of his children. He loves them. Romans chapter 8 tells us that there's nothing in the universe above, below, past, forward, down, present, anything that can separate him, him, our, us, from his love. He's working in the lives of those children, conforming them to the image of Christ. He's preparing a home for all those whose names are written down. One day those in that book will live forevermore in the splendors of heaven. You think he did a good job with earth? You just wait till you see heaven. He did earth in six days. He said in John 14, 3, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again. He's been gone a lot longer than six days, friend. I think heaven's going to be more wonderful than we can ever imagine. You say, how do I get into that book? Well, it's simple. You have to be completely sinless, 
in thoughts, word, and action from the day you're born till the day you die. How are you doing in that score? <laughs> Here's the thing about that book. You can't put your name in it, and you can't take your name out. There's another way. You see, Jesus did live that perfect life. He became the spotless lamb on the cross of Calvary. But the truth is that there is no way that you and I uh, ever would be able to keep the law. And so the Bible says that because we're unable to keep the law, then we are put under the curse of the law. It says in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Why? Being made a curse for us. He went in your place. Now he offers up salvation freely to all those who call upon him. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Because of what he did for us, our names can be written in his book. Listen, if you accept that gift of salvation for the first time in your life, you are enough. Not because of something you did, because of something he did. Not a blessing. He values you. God values you. Not because of what you do. Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he talks about the value of your soul. He says, for what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Hey, the whole world's a lot that is worthless compared to your soul. God loves you. He values you. Hey, true, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, we, we get so discouraged sometimes when the plans of our life fall apart. What happens when your ability is not enough? Your home is broken up. Your children break your heart. You contract a life-threatening disease or illness. In spite of it all, because of Christ, you are enough. You are accepted. You're loved. Are you here today and because of life's twists and turns, you feel absolutely unworthy? You failed God and you know it. You want to know a wonderful truth, my friend? God's love for you is not dependent on what you do. Isn't that a blessing? If his love for you were dependent on what you do, he wouldn't love you that much. I mean, just being honest with ourselves. He values you. Uh, it is based on what Christ did. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The truth of it is, you are unworthy. I am unworthy in and of ourselves. But God does not see us that way. He, he, I don't care what burdens are in your life, what cares are in your life. He values you. He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with you. Ephesians 2, 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. Are you here today, friend, crushed by the burden of rejection? John, uh, Jesus said in John 6, 37, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Oh, that's good. Dear Christian, what about you? Why are you serving Christ today? We have to remember, we don't serve to earn his favor. We serve because we have his favor. The love of Christ constraineth us. Our value is not found in what we do for Christ. Our value is found in what he did for us. Changing that mindset 
will help us to not ever get discouraged. Even our greatest success in God's service is no nothing compared uh, to having heaven as our forever home. This changes everything. Uh, the pressure of performance is now replaced with the confidence of our position. That's why he tells the disciples, be careful. Be careful about getting too excited about what you're doing. Because, see, friend, you know and I know if you serve God for any period of time, it isn't always, people aren't always flocking to hear you. People aren't always getting healed and demons aren't always be thrown out. Sometimes demons seem to be coming in. <laughs> and sometimes it, the days aren't good. Sometimes the work is not going so well and you aren't on top of the world and you're discouraged and you're defeated and it helps us if we remember like Jesus said, hey, rejoice not because of what you can do, but rejoice in the fact that your name is written down in heaven. That means on your worst day, my friend, your name's still written down in heaven. That means when you're sick, when you fail God, if you, if you mess up in your life, your name's written down in heaven if you've accepted him as your Savior. That's something we can rejoice in, isn't it? Helps us to remember that. Our value is found in Him. It is a greater value than we can ever hope to manufacture ourselves. Where's your value today? If you find your value, what you do or what you are, I can guarantee you, friend, you're going to have a lot of ups, maybe, but you'll also have a lot of downs. If your value is found the Lord Jesus Christ loved us enough to stretch out his arms and die for us, write our names in the book of life that we might spend forever with him. Hey, that's something to rejoice in even if it snows. Amen? In April. That's something we can rejoice in. Where you find your value today. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed.